1 Samuel chapter 17, and there you'll find a story that you're familiar with. It's a story of David and Goliath. And so as you're turning there, I'm going to read the entire chapter in just a minute. But let me begin with this, this quote. This quote comes from a, a man named Malcolm Gladwell. He's a, he's a psychologist, kind of a, a, um, a, a social, a business type guy. And he writes a book that's titled David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. And, and here's, here's a quote from Gladwell in his book. He writes, the battle between David and Goliath is won miraculously by an underdog who by all expectations should not have won at all. This is the way that we've told one another the story over the many centuries since. It is how the phrase David and Goliath has come to be embedded in our language as a metaphor for improbable victory. But then here's what he writes. He writes, the problem with that version of events that David was the underdog is that almost everything about it is wrong. So that's what, that's what Gladwell writes. He then goes on to highlight that the reasons why he thinks the battle between David and Goliath were not really, or why that battle wasn't really an underdog story. And, and some of his reasons are that Goliath, his expectations of, of war were, were hand-to-hand, and, and that's not what David came with. So David wasn't really the underdog, that David had speed and agility. He wasn't clothed in the armor like Goliath was, so, so he had that to his advantage. Or David's weapon, which we often think is just a mere sling, Gladwell argues that that's a, a great weapon when it's in the hands of a skillful uh, person. And then he also talks about Goliath's apparent poor eyesight. That, that's, that's an effect of his, his, his disease that caused him to be that big. He says he, he actually was probably blind. It's a fascinating book. He lists even more reasons. But, but each book, the, the story after story, tells of individuals... Uh, in, in our world, who face powerful opponents, people who, according to Gladwell, like David, aren't intimidated by the apparent strength of their enemies. And so all these stories are stories of people who win. And so he's saying it's, it's not about being an underdog. It's about knowing the, the weakness of your opponent. Now, I start with this story not because I agree totally with, with Gladwell. In fact, his, his telling of the story is, is, is void of God at all. So he doesn't mention the Lord at all, which I'd say that's, that's the main, main point of the story. Okay, so, so he misses that, which is a pretty big thing to miss. But it would seem from, from Gladwell's perspective that David did this not with God's help, but he just did it because he knew the weaknesses, which I would say is wrong. But I mentioned Gladwell's book because I think his argument touches on something, namely that we've been telling the story wrong. Now let me explain. The primary way that this is told to all ages, from, from Sunday school to, to senior adults, is that if you have enough faith, you can face anything. Right? Maybe you've seen the movie, Facing the Giants. You can win a football game if you just have enough faith. Right? And so, so it's often taught that the primary reason of this story is to encourage us to have faith to face our giants. Or maybe another, another teaching, if you choose the right stones, you better choose the right five stones. Because if you choose the right five, you can overcome anything. I mean, if you just searched online for sermons of 1 Samuel 17, I would, I would venture to say that 8 out of 10 would be focused on how you slay your giants. Or practical ways for you to conquer your Goliath. And I think our instinct to go there immediately to say, okay, I'm like David and I need faith to conquer my giants. I think that misses the point of the story. One commentator writes, interpretation and application of this great story will suffer if we leap too quickly to the victory over our Goliaths as a metaphor for whatever wistful elements or emotional frailties we encounter in our regular, regular everyday experiences. Such application, so what he's saying is to jump to, okay, I'm David, how do I slay my giants? If we jump there immediately, he says such applications will be anemic and will miss the grand and powerful themes of this text. 
So hear me say, I don't think this story is primarily about David's faith in the midst of improbable circumstances. I don't think this story is primarily to encourage us to have faith in order to conquer or slay our giants. I think that is an application. I think it is an application. We will get there, but I don't think it's primary. Instead, I think the primary purpose of 1 Samuel 17 is simply this. The Lord never loses. That's the point. The Lord never loses. Or put it another way, those who oppose the Lord never win. I, mean, I think that's the point. The Lord is the main character of this story. And so in this sense, it is an underdog story. But the underdog is Goliath, not David. And the underdog does what underdogs normally do, and that is lose. Not because he wasn't prepared for David, but because he opposed the Lord of Israel. And so in this story, the Lord accomplishes his purpose. There is never really any question about whether the Lord will win. He is going to win, and he does so in this story through his anointed one. Well, let's read our passage. 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's going to be a, a, a bit of reading, so follow along if you have your Bibles. I'm going to read verses 1 through 54. I'm going to stop at 54 because, Lord willing, in a couple weeks when we pick back up in 1 Samuel, verses 58 through chapter 18. 58, 55 through 58, go with the next chapter. Okay, so that's why I'm stopping. I'm not avoiding them. We're going to deal with them um, next. But, but let's, let's follow along. Follow along as I read 1 Samuel chapter 17 and hear this story. Verse 1, now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soka, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soka and Azekah in Ephes-Demim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and the Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him, and he stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 12, now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. And the names of his three oldest sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, Abinadab and third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The eldest three followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take, your brothers, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. And also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and, and bring some token back from them. Now Saul, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning, and he left the sheep with the keeper, and he took the provisions, and he went, as Jesse had commanded him. 
And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, and he ran to the ranks. And he went and he greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines, and he spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, they fled from him, and they were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who, come, who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep of yours in the wilderness? I know your presumption. I know the evil of your heart. You've come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And David turned away from him toward another, and he spoke in the same way. And when people an- and the people answered him as again as before when the words that David spoke were heard they repeated them before Saul and Saul sent for David and David said to Saul let no man's heart fail because of him your servant will go and fight this Philistine and Saul said to David you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for 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 you are a youth and he's been a man of war from his youth but David said to Saul your servant used to keep sheep for his father and when there came a lion or a bear and, and took a lamb from the flock I went after him And I struck him and delivered him out of its mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and I struck him and I killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and he came near to David with his shield bare in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear." For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, and he took out a stone, and he slung it. 
and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There's no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran, and he stood over the Philistine, and he took his sword, and he drew it out of its sheath, and he killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout, and they pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Well, let me, let me pray for us as we continue. Father, this morning I pray in, in, in the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, I pray that, that my teaching would drop as rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. Father, I pray that your word would bring growth this morning. I pray that your word would wash away dirt and filth and anything else that would hinder our growth. I pray this morning that through your word, that you would admonish the idle, that you would encourage the weak, the faint-hearted, and help the weak. We're asking you to do this because only you can. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. Well, I've outlined this chapter very, very um, uh, simply. There's four sections, and I've used a, a common um, literary plot breakdown because this, like all good stories, has all of these four sections. And so, so we're going we're gonna to see the setting in verses 1 through 11. We're going to see the rising action, verses 12 through 40. We're going to see the climax, then verses 41 through 49, and then the resolution in verses 50 through 54. So let's begin with the setting, verses 1 through 11. So this chapter picks up right where we left off last time. There's an undefined amount of time that's passed. We don't know, long, know how long Saul has been king, but we know at the beginning of, of chapter 17, there's, there's a battle taking place. The sides are drawing up, the Philistines and the Israelites. And the Philistines, they, they were common enemies in, among Saul's time. So, so they're, they're no stranger to warring with the Israelites. So, so there's this big valley, and, and the Israelites are on one side, and the Philistines are on the other, and they, they draw up their lines. And as it, as it appears there at a stalemate, one, at, at some point a, a, a champion from the Philistines walks down into the valley. This is Goliath, their champion. And he, he says, here I am. Someone come and fight me. The, Goliath is, is the first character that we're introduced here to in, this, in this setting in chapter 17. If you notice, verses 4 through 10 are all about Goliath. He's no small character. He receives a lot of attention. In fact, one, one commentator says the portrayal of Goliath may well be the most detailed physical description of any found in Scripture. So it is all about Goliath. And, and the author wants us to get Goliath. He wants us to understand who this man was. So what does he tell us? He tells us his height. He was six cubits in a span, which, let, let's be honest, that means nothing to us. right? But, but if, if calculated, that, that would be he was, he was about nine feet, nine inches tall, just under ten feet tall. Certainly uncommon for that time, but, but certainly uncommon for any time. His appearance, just, just his, his presence is imposing. But not only is he tall, he has armor. Remember back a, a few chapters ago, we learned the Philistines were, were the metal workers. That's what they were well known for. And so he was, he was covered with metal armor, and his, his weapons were all metal. So he had a bronze helmet. He had this coat of mail that weighed over 120 pounds. He had, a bronze, he had bronze armor on his legs. He had a bronze javelin. Some of your translations may say a curved sword, a bronze sword that he had. 
And his spear had a head that weighed 15 pounds. And so the author wants us to know not only how tall Goliath is, but, but he is well armored. He is well equipped. This Goliath is great. And so as we're reading, the fear of the Israelites doesn't seem to be unfounded. This is an imposing figure. But notice one other thing we observe about Goliath, and that's, that's what he says, his message. He comes out and he's mocking the Israelites. He, why, why have you come up and lined up like you're going to go to battle? We know you don't, you're not going to fight. You're just, you're, just, you're just lined up. I mean, we Philistines, we've encamped on your territory and you've done nothing about it but stand over there and do nothing. Goliath intends to end this stalemate. And so he says, hey, let's do things our way. You send your champion to come fight my champion. Let's have a man-versus-man battle, and, and, and let's spare some, some life loss. Let's just do representative fighting. I'm a Philistine. You're servants of Saul. Let's just fight one another. Whoever kills the other, his army, will serve the victorious representative of his army. That's, that, that's, the, that's the deal. Let, let's do it. Send your man. So, so Goliath sets out these terms. And, and the fact that he explains the rules, that, that may mean that the Israelites aren't familiar with this. Um, and so he's explaining how this is engaged in. It was coming for the Philistines, but, but apparently not for the Israelites. But, but it's also interesting here to notice that the Philistines don't honor the terms of this agreement, do they? Right? That's the deal. Whoever wins, the other side serves the other. Right? And we just read. That's not what happens. But finally, Goliath, he, he's, he's trying to provoke the Israelites, and finally he heaps shame or he defiles the ranks of the Israelites. He's there to start a fight, and he clearly doesn't see any scenario playing out where he would be on the losing side. So, so that's Goliath. That's who we meet first. But then after the description of Goliath, notice there in verse 11, we're introduced to two more characters. We're introduced to Saul and the Israelites. And notice how they're described in verse 11. When they heard the words of Goliath, they were dismayed and afraid. So you have Goliath mighty, and then scaredy cat Saul, and all the Israelites following their leader. Right? So, so the stage is set. So we have Saul, the mighty king, who had been appointed to fight Israel's wars. You remember, that's why they wanted a king. Give us a king to fight battles for us. And this king is shivering in his sandals, and like their king, the Israelites all follow suit, afraid of Goliath. Now let me say two things. First, remember what we learned last week. Remember what Samuel was not to judge by. You remember when Samuel went to appoint the next king? He wasn't supposed to judge by appearance, right? The Lord's judge is not by outside appearance. Remember what grading rubric Samuel was not to use when anointing the next king, right? So we as readers have just come out of chapter 16 where the Lord scoffs at appearances. Ha, you think he's the king? No, 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 that's not how I judge. So we've just come out of that. And we've just seen where in chapter 16 the Lord declared that he's going to do what he's going to do with whoever he wants to do it. Right? And he's going to determine. It's not going to be appearance. And so when David steps on the scene in just a minute, it's not oblivious to the appearance of Goliath. He sees Goliath. He just isn't phased because he knows that the battle is the Lord's, regardless of how things appear. So, so that's where fresh off of chapter 16, and Saul and all the Israelites are judging by appearance. Oh, this is not going to go well for us. Right? They're doing exactly what the Lord said not to do. But then the second thing to say is what we know about Saul. Remember what we know about Saul. Do you remember why he was anointed king when he was first anointed? Remember his physique? He was head and shoulders above everyone. He had the most impressive physical stature of anyone on the side of the Israelites, which meant he was the obvious choice. He was the one most qualified to fight Goliath. When everyone is scanning the Israelite army, right, there's one man who's above, who's taller than everyone else. Not to mention, he's the king. He's the leader. 
He had already led Israel to impressive battles. He had even led an impressive battle of victory over the Philistines. But here, Saul is cowering. He's afraid. Because we know here in chapter 17, something's different about Saul, isn't it? You remember what happened last week in chapter 16? Right? Once the next king, once, once the Lord anointed David, David received the spirit. But what happened to Saul? The spirit was removed from Saul. Saul lost the spirit of the Lord. He was no longer equipped to carry out his task. He was no longer God's king. And as readers, we ought not to be surprised at Saul's timidity. He doesn't have the power of the Lord here. In fact, one commentator argued that instead of David and Goliath, this historic event ought to be called David and Saul. And his point is that, that, the, that this whole event shows the superior, superiority of the anointed king over the once anointed king. That here we have the king who later we find out actually has his armor there with him. Right? He has his armor. Here, David, take my armor. It's, it's actually right here. I have it. I'm not going to use it, but, but you might want to. So here's the king with his own armor who's head and shoulders above everyone else, and he's trembling and afraid. Well, here comes the shepherd boy with no armor, no sword, only a sling. He's unafraid and he's courageous. The king had disobeyed the Lord and lost the spirit. The shepherd was a man after God's own heart and had been given the spirit. And this king's loss, the shepherd boy's gain, made all the difference in the world. The spirit was going to lead the Lord's anointed one. Which brings us to the rising action, verse 12. After the setting, after establishing the setting and these dire circumstances of Saul and the Israelites, we're introduced to that shepherd boy whose mention comes like a breath of fresh air. Here comes David. Oh, okay. Here comes David. No longer in Saul's service. Apparently Saul didn't need him anymore. He wasn't needed to, to accompany Saul with his lyre into, into this battle. So he's gone back to his shepherding duty. So he's, he's caring for his father's sheep, but, but he would also run errands for his father. He would take provisions to his brothers who were at war. So there were no military provisions, no government providing rations for the soldiers. And so the family members and relatives had to send food and support. And so that's what David does. The youngest is doing that for his three oldest brothers. And so on one particular day, Jesse tells his son, go, go. I'm worried about, I'm worried about my boys. So, so take this food, then take this to their commanders, and then bring back a token from them. Let me know that they're okay. Right? Little did Jesse know that his... No one's life had been lost yet in the war. Right? He had no reason to be worried, but he is, so he sends David. So David makes this journey one more time. Notice verse 20. David leaves his sheep with the keeper before he leaves. The author wants us to know that this is a responsible shepherd. David's not just going to go and leave, even if it's a small flock, as his brother says. He still takes care of them. Okay, you're with him. Now let me go. So he goes. The good shepherd goes and, and, and runs his errand. He obeys his father. And as he goes, we've learned that for 40 days, Goliath has, has run his spiel. He's, he's walked out. Challenge them. Nobody comes out. He goes back to his line until the next day. And so for 40 days, the Israelites had, had drawn together. Here comes Goliath. And, and, and they run away, afraid of Goliath. But as we learn, things are about to take a surprising turn. David arrives at the camp just as, not coincidence, providentially, he arrives just as they're going out to their battle. They're going to line up again. And so David leaves the stuff with the, with the person in charge. And then he runs out to the line, to the front line, to see his brothers. And as he's there, Goliath comes and he spoke the words that he had spoken before. And at the end of verse 23, we find out that David heard him. You might say that Goliath spoke out one time too many. Right? David heard him. It's going to be different this time. And so in verse 24 through 27, there's this, this exchange between David and some of the Israelites. He learns what the great reward. So you're going, to get, you're going to marry the king's daughter. You're going to get a great reward. And actually, you're not going to have to pay taxes at all in Israel. So the, the king really wants someone to step up and take this challenge. 
And so David is asking, and he's asking others, and his brother overhears him, and his brother is angry. He says, I know why you're here. You just want to be on the front line. You just want to see what war's like. As if to say, well, we're the warriors, David. You're just a little boy. Go away. Go home. You don't deserve to be here. Which we have to be reminded. Remember, he's the one that Samuel thought was going to be king. What a lousy king he would have made. Right? So, so, so he shows himself to be more unqualified than even before. And so David, with great restraint, he humbly responds to his brother. And then he turns on. Turns to the next people. Say, well, what's the reward? Confirm what, what the guy's going to get. And so David keeps asking. And, and word travels up to the king. So King Saul says, oh, there, there's someone that wants to fight. Hey, send him here. And so David goes up to Saul. He says, let no man's heart fail because of him. I'm going to go and I'll fight. I'll fight Goliath. I'll go. Saul initially meets David's suggestion with a refusal. You're only a kid. You're just a kid. You can't do that. You are going to walk to your death. You're overmatched. To which David then answers, if you think I'm overmatched, I've met people just as big as him. Lions and bears. I'm no stranger to conflict. In fact, I've, I've killed lions and bears that tried to take my sheep. Don't, don't worry about me. I can take care of myself. I've killed them. And this uncircumcised Philistine, he's going to be just like one of those dead lions or bears. And David continues, The Lord who has delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And so Saul, really no choice but, but to say, Okay, no one else has volunteered. Why, why, go give it a shot. And so in preparation, he says, but, but, but before you go, take this armor. And if you notice, he clothes him in the exact same type of armor that Goliath has. He says, if you want to fight like him, you better, you better put on the armor like he has. So David, maybe just to amuse the king, shows him how, how insufficient he'd be with that on. He says, I can't do this. I haven't tested it yet. That would be foolish of me. Let me just go. And so David takes five stones from a brook and a sling, and he goes. His staff, stones, and a sling. And he goes and approaches Goliath. And, and with his approach, we reach the climax. <clears throat> Before we reach that, let, let, me, let me draw your attention to a few points of application here. Because I think here in David's interaction, I think we see, see three points of application. So first, notice David's theocentric perspective. David has a theos, theocentric, a God-centered perspective. Notice in chapter 17, it isn't until David steps on the scene that the Lord comes into the picture at all. Right? It's only David who sees things rightly. It's only David who judges not by appearance. He doesn't see an, an overpowering foe. He sees someone attacking the God of Israel. And so in verse 26, he says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Who, is, who does he think he is that he should defy the armies of the living God? According to David, the identity of Goliath isn't primarily that of an opposing giant. Instead, he's an uncircumcised Philistine Who's opposing the armies of the one true living God? David is baffled, not only that this giant thinks he can oppose the living God, but that this giant thinks he can oppose the living God and win. David says, who does he think he is? And even more baffling probably to David is that King Saul and all of Israel seem to agree. No one's going to step up. But in verse 26, David injects the first theological note into the narrative. There's something bigger going on. The reality of the situation reaches far beyond its appearance, and David knows that. The reality of the situation is that, is that the Lord is alive and that we are his people, David says, and that changes everything. And the application for us, I think, I think it, it, the same thing applies. The Lord is alive and we are his people, which means any life circumstance or situation, any challenge or difficulty, anything in your life that is viewed from a perspective that is void of God 
will always prove to be hopeless. Anything. If you're viewing it apart from God in your perspective, it's going to be hopeless. I guarantee it. If not immediately, eventually it will. But the good news, Christian, the good news is that not not one single second of our lives is lived apart from God. Not one second, not one moment, not one day, not one year. We don't live apart from God. Our whole lives are enveloped by a Godward perspective because God is involved in everything. Which means we ought to have a theocentric view of everything. So hear that this morning. The Lord is with you. You have hope no matter how dire your circumstances. Second, I think we see the reality of opposition. The reality of opposition. On on this passage, one commentator notes that Christians should not be surprised when they encounter opposition to what God has called them to do. We see in this story opposition every turn. I mean, we see it obviously in Goliath, right? He's clearly opposition. He's the giant who attempts to to hinder God's deliverance. But you also see it in some not-so-obvious places. David's brother. Opposition from, from his brother, who would be content to stand passively by and have his little brother just run back home. Go home. Don't do this, David. You also see opposition from King Saul, who first he'd say, David, don't fight. You're going you're gonna to hurt yourself. Don't do it. And eventually, well, well, wait a minute. Wear this armor. At least, at least do this. Opposition after opposition from the king. And I was going to say that opposition is a mark of Christian faithfulness in a fallen world. I mean, it's just, that's just the world we live in. Christians face opposition. Faithful Christians will be opposed. I mean, think about it. This was the experience of, of Israel, the people. Think about in Egypt, coming out of Egypt in the wilderness, entering the promised land. Opposition, opposition, opposition. Think about the experience of Jesus himself in the wilderness at the beginning of his, of his ministry. Opposition. Think about in the Garden of Gethsemane. Opposition. Think about on the cross. Opposition. Think about the Apostle Paul at Ephesus, at Philippi, at Rome. Opposition, opposition, opposition. It's been the experience of many saints throughout the ages. Polycarp, William Tyndale, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Jim Elliot. Opposition, opposition, opposition. Opposition will be experienced by God's people until the day of Christ's return. Either then or until we close our eyes in death, whichever comes first. But for the Christian, opposition doesn't drive us to fear. Opposition doesn't drive us to fear. Rather, it drives us to faith. Because the Lord never loses. Those who oppose the Lord will never win. Let goods and kindreds go. This moral life also. This body they may kill. His truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. The Lord never loses, Christians. So face opposition with boldness. Then finally, briefly, final application from this section, we see the pattern of faith. Did you notice why David had confidence that the Lord would deliver him? Your servant has struck down lions and bears. This this uncircumcised Philistine is going to be like one of them. The Lord who delivered me from Paul of lion and Paul of bear is going to deliver me now. Do you see how the Lord's work in the past fueled David's faith in the present? Do you see that? Oh, he's been faithful in the past. He's delivered me countless times. This is going to be no different. Why would the Lord forsake me now? This battle is even greater than any I fought before. And so it's past faithfulness that drives his faith in the present. There's this backward and forward nature to David's faith. Because the Lord had delivered from lions and bears, he had no question that the Lord would deliver him from Goliath. I simply want to say that remembering is one of the greatest tools in the Christian fight of faith. Remembering. Remembering. 
I mean, you see it all over in Scripture. Set up a statue or, or set up rocks and remind, that will remind you of what the Lord did. Or, or raise an Ebenezer so that you remember what the Lord did. Or in the Psalms, proclaim the works of the Lord from generation to generation so they might not forget what the Lord did for you. Or do this in remembrance of me. Right? Memory, remembering is a tool in the fight of faith. Past grace motivates future faith. And so especially as we think about today, one of our hopes for, for today and the future is we remember that God has sustained Fox Road Baptist Church for, for decades past. And so when we face current challenges, future challenges, or difficulties or opposition, we can say, remember. Remember all those people who came from afar to, to, to be here for this day. Remember the lives that, that were lived and the people that died serving this body. We can say, remember, he who began a good work at 335 Fox Hill Road will bring it to completion. It was grace that brought us safe thus far, and, and grace is going to lead us where? It's going to lead us home, too. Well, let's look briefly at our last two sections. We all know the story, so we'll, we'll run through these last two sections. But we see the climax, verses 41 through 49. We see the story. So, so David and Goliath, they're there. David is, is, is going to meet Goliath. We see the pride of Goliath on full display. He's mocking the weapons. Oh, you're coming at me with sticks. Telling David, I'm going to feed you to the birds and the beasts. Obviously oblivious to what's about to happen. And we see the faith of David that meets this pride of Goliath. You have your weapons, he says, but I come in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied, Goliath, which you should be worried about because the Lord's going to deliver you into my hand. I'm going to strike you down. I'm going to cut off your head. Right? This is what the shepherd boy is saying to the Goliath, to the giant. And, and, and Goliath, you're not going to feed me. I'm going to feed you and all of the Philistines to the birds and the beasts today. And all the earth will know that there's a God in Israel, David said. And all this assembly will know that the Lord doesn't save by sword and spear. And then verse 48 and 49. Notice these are the only verses that describe the actual battle. It's only two little verses. David took the stone, he slung it, hit Goliath, and he fell down. Battle over. Right? Just like that. Sank into his forehead, he fell on the ground. Just like that, the Philistine threat is gone, which leads to resolution, verses 50 through 54. David prevailed with a sling and the stone. And so verse 50 reminds us, David had no sword. Remember, the Philistine had slain on the ground and got there without a sword. So David, to fulfill his promise, he, he takes Goliath's sword. He's not going to need, need it anymore. He takes his sword and he cuts off Goliath's head. Right? We can't leave that out of the story. That's a big part. That, that is a total defeat of the Philistine. And so Goliath... Headless laying there, the Philistines see their champion on the ground. They start running. They don't, they don't submit to Israel as they had agreed. They're running away as fast as they can. And so all the men of Israel and Judah, they pursue them. They start running down the valley. I just A great picture, just the valley filling with Israelites and the Philistines running away. David takes Goliath's head to Jerusalem as probably some, some type of trophy. And then says David kept Goliath's armor in his own tent. And that's, that's the end of the story. And so let me close with, with one final application, then we're done. I think we see in this story, in this, this conquering of Goliath by David, I think we see a pattern of the Lord's deliverance, or the Lord's pattern of deliverance. I think there's a pattern here. As David makes clear, I mean, his statements, we ought not to, to breeze over his statements to Goliath. He makes clear, the Lord doesn't deliver the way that one might think. It's not by sword or might. That's not how the Lord works. Instead, David says the Lord's going to accomplish victory in such a way that there's no doubt about whether or not there's a God in Israel. That's what he says. He says, I'm going to win in such a way that when I'm done with you, the scorecard is going to show there's a God in Israel. 
Right? That's how the Lord is going to win. In other words, the Lord accomplishes victory. The Lord delivers his people. The Lord works time and time again in such a way that there's never a doubt as to why the victory was won. But the reason is always because of the Lord. Always. That's how the Lord works. So in the story of David and Goliath, the Lord gave victory, but he gave victory through what others would regard as weakness. The shepherd boy with a, with a stick and a sling. Through a weak and unimpressive shepherd boy. On this point, one commentator says, The Lord brings deliverance without the symbols of man's strength. We hear this throughout the Bible. What matters is not whether you have the best weapons, right? Let man not boast in his horses or his might. What matters is not that you have the best weapons, but whether you have the real God. In fact, he continues, your inadequacy may be precisely your qualification. God's strength shines most brightly behind the foreground of your weakness. The Lord delivers as here, always through weakness. And lastly, we see the Lord delivers through his anointed one. And I'll close with this. It is the anointed one who delivers God's people. I think in the story of David and Goliath, we see in miniature the story of the gospel. I think that's here. I think we see a foretaste of the deliverance that was to come through David's greater son here in David. In the words of, of one children's Bible, that this is how one children's Bible closes this story. It says, many years after David, God was going to send his people another young hero to fight for them. And to save them. But this hero would fight the greatest battle the world has ever known. So, so I think we see in David a type of the greater David, Jesus himself. Many years later, all God's people, think with me, all of God's people would be face to face with an opponent that they could not defeat. They would be scared and helpless. They would be unable, all of them, to defeat their foe. None of their ranks could do it. Yet there would come one man. There would come a man, an anointed one, a man anointed by God for a specific task. And this man, this anointed one, would fight on behalf of the scared people who couldn't help themselves. He would fight as their representative, and he would use tactics that no one would have ever expected. It was his apparent weakness, defeat, that enabled him to strike the final blow, wasn't it? This one man by himself destroyed the enemy, raised victorious, conquering sin and death. And this one man, one man alone came victory for all of God's people. And it's his victory alone that the people now celebrate. They don't celebrate as though they were the ones who defeated the enemy. They celebrate as the ones who have freely received the benefit of a victory that was won by another. The anointed one, friends, Christians, we have an enemy far greater than Goliath, and we are enslaved by someone far greater than the Philistines. But we have a representative who is far greater than David, and we have a victory far greater than the felling of a 10-foot giant. Let us rejoice in the story of the greater David, the story of Jesus Christ, and let us rejoice in his victory for us over sin, death, and Satan. Let's pray as we close.